Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to the beginning of season 11 of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, your host and author, Caroline Foran. I'm so glad to have you here. I hope that by now you have heard my message loud and clear about owning it real time and that you've signed up to access what my guest right here describes as the perfect hot brain intervention. All will make sense when you listen to this episode. Porik Walsh is my guest here. He's an expert, he's a behavioral specialist, and he works alongside Dr. Michael Kane, who I've had in the podcast before to break down anxiety, and he was my most listened to guest of all time. So I figure Porik must have something interesting to say as well. Here we talk about the difference between the hot brain and the cold brain, and we really talk about how to approach moving from the hot brain into the cold brain. It's a really interesting framework, and it really helps me better understand my experience of anxiety when it's happening and I hope it will do the same for you enjoy thank you so much for agreeing to come on owning it the anxiety podcast I am I just get so excited having an expert on like uh, you are you are the to me like the Beyonce's of what to to what normal people I guess feel like (laughs) Mullingar's answer to the booty shake (laughs) (laughs) thanks for coming on and you know what when I was um I was looking at the link you sent me and only then did I connect the dots that you work with Michael Caine I just looked at it before I came onto this podcast and I said what is Mike doing on here so yeah I work with Mike and his wife Rose and we have the Actualize Academy actualizeacademy.com which is a resource that we developed combining neuroscience Uh, clinical psychology and behavioral psychology so we can discuss that later on but essentially what we try and do is combine all of those elements to create engaging content uh, courses for educators uh, healthcare workers and human human uh, services uh, workers it's incredible what you do now I don't want to put you under pressure but do you know that Michael is my most listened to guest ever 
Oh, he's going to love that, Caroline. Oh, I'm, I once once I hear him tell me this, he's going to keep going on about it. I actually texted him and I said, you could have at least taken off your East Galway drawl for a little bit of the podcast. But uh, he's he's intriguing. He is. He just explains things very well, as you do, too. And like we had this conversation. So for context, you and I met uh, last week when we were on the TV together. Now, most of my listeners are in the UK, so they won't know the six o'clock show, but it's a little lovely show that we do here in Ireland. And you were on it as an expert. I was on a talk about owning it real time and we got chatting. And I just I'm always so delighted when I come across someone who is in that expert world, but can distill the information in such a digestible way, because when you're overwhelmed with anxiety, you don't need loads of scientific terminology coming at you. You need to really connect on a human level. Um, and that's, you know, Michael is has been so good with doing that as well. He was on talking, like explaining exactly what's going on when you're experiencing anxiety from, from a neuroscience perspective. And then he came back on again and we had a really good chat around what he thinks is this like basal level of anxiety we're all living with. with And it, it, it became a little bit like apocalyptic almost about the news that we consume and like, you know, if, if it's all intentional and, uh, what we can do about that, bringing um, awareness in into our lives. But with you, something that really struck me from when we were chatting last week was your use of the phrase, the hot brain. And I know there's lots of different frameworks that people put on things to understand when we go from our kind of rational calm selves into that fight or flight mode. But I think it's a really helpful tool to pull out of the back pocket that you can look out for and recognize when, even if even if you don't necessarily know how to stop feeling anxious, and sometimes we don't, if you could know that, oh, I'm in this part of the brain now, that in itself is powerful. So can you start by just explaining your take on the anxious brain, the hot, is it the, the hot brain or the cold brain, whatever you, whatever way you approach it? Yeah, I think we were just having a, a, a conversation. You were talking about owning it real time and you were talking about how it is. Nice in, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's an in situ uh set of tools that people can apply when things are overwhelming them. And that to me is immediately said, oh, this is a hot brain intervention. This is something that is trying to help people get back to baseline, to become grounded again in that moment. It's not concerned with, you know, anything beyond that. It's not concerned with real detailed cognitive interventions. What you're trying to do is reduce arousal levels and help people feel present in that exact moment. So for me, that sounded like a hot brain intervention. And the the term, you know, thinking fast and slow is from Daniel Kahneman. And I just, I suppose the hot brain, cold brain is the way that I, I, I think about it, Caroline. To, to go back, most of my work would would have been with people who uh, who have difficulty processing this information. I actually started studying psychology uh, oof, 20 plus years ago in Galway. Oh, when and that's you were like have... five, you're so young. <laughs> I was actually uh, a couple of years ahead of of, uh, of Mike, Dr. K, Dr. Michael Keane. So my interest in psychology was peaked very early on, actually. When I was in secondary school, I remember watching... Uh, a program called uh, The Anatomy of Disgust. It was on Channel 4 one evening. And at that time, I wanted to study business studies or something along that those lines. And I saw this program and it, was, it just opened my mind. I thought, oh my goodness, there are loads of different ways that we... And what I found interesting was, how do we learn these emotions? That it's not innately built into us to fear something 
Uh, it's not innately within us to find something disgusting. A lot of the the, the items and, and processes that they discussed were learned processes. So that really got me interested in this area of psychology. I thought, ooh, this is a quite a young field. Psychology is you know, a little over 100 years old in its current form. You know, it's a merging of philosophy and, and medical science into this, this field that, that studies psychology. So that really got me interested. Um, and, and that's how I ended up meeting Mike and Rose. Um, uh, now, the area of, of anxiety is something, uh, sorry, from there, having studied psychology, I did it mostly from a, 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 for a reason of, curiosity caroline i was interested in why we do what we do why is it that humans behave in particular ways in particular it was it was behavior because we know that what we do is impacted by our emotional state it's impacted by our cognitive processes like how we think about and how we perceive particular events how we misinterpret or act irrationally sometimes even though we would anticipate that humans would behave in a particular way we can start to do things in an irrational way and why does that happen we're really interested in social psychology and how we our own emotions our own behavior uh can impact others and how society's uh, collective behavior can impact upon us and um, so i went on and studied behavior analysis after that to really take a deep dive into this and understand what it is so why human behavior uh, how, why we behave in particular ways and what impacts upon that. So from there, that was mostly curiosity up until that point and then realised, hold on a second here, this isn't just about a journey of self-discovery. This actually really helps people. This can be really, really helpful. So I started working in schools and seeing the impact that it could have for children. Um, I saw the impact that it was having in human services for people with disability, with acquired brain injury, and these are folks who might have had uh, brain damage or would have had difficulty processing emotions in, in uh, ways that we would, would typically see. Uh, difficulty uh, processing events in a way uh, or using executive functions. What I mean by that are skills like problem solving, skills like language, even processing the sensory environment was a challenge. So a lot of the work, initial clinical work that I was doing, was trying to really dig deep into understanding uh, how hot brain uh, interventions work, particularly for somebody who you can't talk with, for somebody who mightn't have language skills, who mightn't have receptive language skills, who has difficulty processing the sensory environment, who require others for personal care support, for those who require additional support needs. Then you really have to tune into that hot brain intervention. How can you help keep somebody uh, calm? How can you help them deal with anxiety? How can you help them navigate the world in a way that, that is really in tune with that hot brain? So what is happening in our minds and bodies when we are in hot brain territory? Well, let me give you a refresher on it, because it's a really good way for me to perceive it. If you hold your hand up and put your fist above your elbow, and you look at your forearm, that's kind of your spinal cord, where a lot of the messaging of the environment around you comes in. OK, so what you see, what you hear goes through your spinal cord, goes up into your fist and the message travels along the uh, the base of our, our brain and it 
travels up through our midbrain. Now, that area is responsible for things like our uh, emotional regulation, things like memory, things like that fight or flight response. And then eventually it hits our frontal lobe, which is why humans have such big foreheads and such big heads because we're the most evolved species. Uh, yeah. I have a five <laughs> head. Th those executive functions are responsible for things like problem solving, language perception, um, being able to, to differentiate uh, events and, and, and figure out ways that aren't complete reactions to, to a, a threat or to a stimulus in our environment. Now, when the hot brain kicks in, what can happen is our automatic behaviors, that message stops at our midbrain. And instead of responding with a rational and measured response that has been processed through problem solving or executive functions, it ends up being this reaction, this emotional response to a perceived event, to a perceived threat. Now, that can be really, really tricky because that message is like a, Mike described it like a, like a roadblock that it gets stuck at that midbrain if we haven't practiced any any particular responses. So that's when we ended up working together, actually, was a lot of the clients coming into the actualized clinic were uh, people who were receiving neurofeedback training, but they're, the, 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 they were responding well to the treatment. But in terms of actual skills that they could use outside of the clinic, there might be showing improvements, but how? what are the skills? What are the um, different behavioral approaches that can complement that? What are the changes in their environment that will support these behavioral changes? Uh, that was really important there. So what happens in our brain is we, we kind of shut down this frontal part of our brain, the part that's going to help us respond in a, in a calm and rational way. I like to think about this like when you're in the car and you're driving along the North Keys or you're driving in traffic and immediately hear this horn blaring behind you. Now, our hot brain is going to turn around and say, what the, who said that? Where, where, where? And, and re react really quickly to that perceived threat but if we've practiced it and if we're calm if we're having a good day if marty whelan is on lyric fm in the car and things are okay that message might reach our frontal lobe and we might go okay this person doesn't have an alternative way of communicating with me apart from beeping their horn let me take a second let me breathe check my mirrors oh hold on a second i'm in the wrong lane they're just looking to get in and they're trying to in indicate that, that I need to give them some space. And that's kind of our hot brain and our cold brain working. But of course, a horn beeping is just one instance of hundreds that we encounter on our day where there are, are inoc innocuous stimuli in our environment, things that might be perceived as a threat or things that we can rationally respond to and give ourselves that time to really uh, figure out another way to, to, to tackle them. It sounds like you're describing the hot brain as something that is moment to moment like so you get pushed into your hot brain is it possible and I'm, I'm assuming it is that you just you could go into your hot brain and kind of stay there but also if if when we go into our hot brain if that messaging has been cut off and it can't reach the higher part of our more executive brain is it even possible to notice that it's that you're in the hot brain our hot brain, if you take, take daily life, Caroline, a lot of our uh, routines are automatic behaviours. 
the we we simplify the world down because if we, if we had to think about every choice that we had if we had to think about every step that we took in our day it would take us ages imagine thinking about brushing your teeth imagine thinking about the exhausting. clothes that you wear it's exhausting think of compare like your day to day getting up getting dressed you know uh brushing your teeth having your breakfast out you go compare that to the stress that goes of get, getting ready for a wedding for instance where you have to choose a myriad of different clothes and the cognitive load that goes into that and the stress and the 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 arguments that can go along with that and think about adding that into hundreds of different uh, choices and decisions that you make in your life. So a lot of the time, what we do is we simplify this down into to cognitive schemas and we develop habits, rituals and routines that make our life easier. Now, most of the time, those can serve us really well. And that's our automatic responses to everyday events. We see a particular cue. I see my toothbrush. I pick it up. I brush my teeth. I see an indicator on a car in front of me. I let them out. Everything is fine. I get an alert on my phone, I pick it up, I read it and things go on. That's our, our automatic. And, and when I say hot brain, it's like our, our automatic responses to that. But then there are times where we need to, uh, and, and that serves us well from a survival instinct, from an evolutionary perspective, that hot brain is really important because if I'm walking across the road with my son and I hear a car beep, I need to respond straight away. I need to react I need to get out of the way. If I see a threat, I need to get out of the way. And that hot brain approach can be really good. It, our heart rate rises, our skin starts to sweat, our pupils dilate, and we behaviorally react very quickly. Then we move to our cold brain and we start to say, okay, rather than don't think, do, we say stop, think, then do. So we stop, think, then do. And that's our cold brain in action. And... That can serve us really well where we start to perceive innocuous things as threats and straight away our our nervous system starts to fire and our cortisone levels start to rise and our adrenaline is starting to cause trouble for us all the time. And we start to become very, very uh, worked up about this. And, and rather than uh, those automatic behaviours being helpful for us, in fact, what they do is they wrap us into more and more stressful situations because there are faulty responses to those innocuous stimuli. But at, at those moments where you are starting to feel overwhelmed, where you can notice this, that's where we start to employ some effective behavioural strategies. So I mentioned to you earlier on that my work is in, in behavioural psychology. So a lot of the time where my clinical focus is on what can we actually do to maintain our well-being? What can we do when we're in those moments of, of, of stress or anxiety? And that's what, what interests me about the, the real-time podcast was that it was giving you a behavioral practice that was going to help. You know, because when we, if, we're, if we go back to our analogy of our, our brain and our, our fist and the message isn't reaching that frontal lobe, that place where, we, for, where executive function's happening, telling somebody to think about their anxiety when they're in the midst of that it's just not not possible it's just not going to work it's not going to be effective particularly where it hasn't been practiced so what you're trying to do is help unblock that and you do that through through a number of different steps predominantly breathing helping you to get your body regulated again helping you to feel grounded so that okay once i feel grounded in myself 
then I can start to to problem solve and figure things out. There's a really nice method that we use in the Actualize Academy called the STOP. It's S-T-O-P-P method. And that just helps somebody when they're in that period of, oh, hold on a second. I'm feeling like there's uh, a perceived threat or I'm feeling anxiety building. So it's five letters. S is the first one and it's STOP and step back. So don't act immediately, just pause. Just take those two seconds to yourself when you feel when you feel it building. So rather than reacting or responding, just stop, step back. The second thing is to take a breath. And going back to, to Mike's podcast, that activates the vagus nerve. It helps us to feel grounded. It slows down our heart rate. It increases oxygen levels for us. So take a deep breath and notice your breath as you're breathing in and out. Essentially, what you're trying to do is expel that carbon dioxide, bringing in oxygen to yourself and slowing things down. And there's a practice that I use where I call it the ground beneath my feet. So if I'm going into a situation that is I'm anticipating is going to be stressful. So last week when you were on TV, I was doing this. I was just taking five steps and I was feeling the ground beneath my feet. I was breathing in slowly, breathing out slowly and just making my body, telling my body things are OK. There is no threat. Telling your body there is no threat and doing that through movement and getting feeling really, really grounded. Like when your mind is racing, get your body grounded. So stop, take a breath. The third thing then is to observe. So just think about once your, your body is somewhat regulated, start to just look at your thoughts. You don't just solve them, just acknowledge this is a thought that I'm, I'm feeling. I'm I'm feeling anxious because my my son has is on the floor and he's saying no all the time. Or this is in a shopping center and I don't know what to do. Or I'm feeling really stressed about work and my heart is racing. Um what are you thinking or feeling? Just try and and acknowledge it, understand it, recognize it, see it as it is, rather than without any judgment for yourself. The P then is just to pull back and put it into some perspective. So is there another way of looking at this? Uh, what would somebody else uh, see and make of it? And what advice would I give to somebody else? If this was a friend of mine, when I've, when I've got back to a place of, of calm, what would somebody else say, what would I say to somebody else in this situation? How would I help them out? Rather than trying to help myself, because we always have skewed biases of our of ourselves, what would we do for somebody else? And the final thing is to practice what works. And I mentioned before that so much of our day, so much of our routines are based upon habit. They're based upon routine and ritual, automatic behaviors, things that we can do with our hot brain. When you think about a, a rugby player or you think about Donny Sexton lining up to take a kick, that kick has been practiced hundreds of thousands of times so that even all of the noise, all of the distraction, all of the anxiety, all of the physiological arousal that he's experiencing isn't going to have an impact on this automatic behavior. It's the same for us when we drive. At the start, when we are learning to drive, our mind 
is an overload. We're trying to take in so much, so much, so much information and our palms are sweaty. Steering wheel is slipping because we're not able to grip it right. That clutch accelerator thing just isn't working for us. We usually have a parent beside us in the passenger seat. And that's one of the reasons why so many of those initial interactions end up in arguments, because when we're cognitively overloaded, when we have too much information going on, when we're trying to learn too much all at the one time, and then somebody else adds in noise, our midbrain takes over and we react emotionally to that. So we we so we're trying to simplify it down. Now when you go to drive and your year is doing it, you can have a conversation with a person in the passenger seat, you can completely engage in the radio, you can turn on the wipers, you can keep an eye on the buggy and or the, the car seat in the back because it's now an automatic behavior. So when we talk about practicing what works and we're trying to apply that to our own mental health, practicing those things that work for us, practicing grounding ourselves, taking, you know, getting ourselves back to baseline physiologically through the ground beneath our feet, through relaxation, through breathing, through doing those routines that work for you. That's really important as well. This might be a difficult question to answer, but when, so the the first thing there is to kind of stop and take a step back. Um, Is that, that seems kind of like impossible to do if if it's an automatic thing when you're in that fear mode like it's almost like you're asking your cold brain to come on the scene immediately but your hot brain is in the driving seat so it's a bit of a catch-22 because if you could acknowledge that you were if you could notice that you're in your hot brain and calm yourself down then we'd all be grand wouldn't we this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Exactly. And this is where the practice comes in, becomes really important, is, is practicing those, those so different... So when you feel calm, practicing it. You, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like going back to the 
to the driving test. We don't put somebody out onto the M50 to say, okay, now here for your first driving lesson, we're going to send you into Friday evening traffic. You know, if you're learning to 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 play guitar, you're not going to do it in front of 50,000 people. You're going to do it in your bedroom where you can take time to practice that, make mistakes, you know, and, and really embed that into something that's going to be, that you can do without even thinking, you know, that, that guitarist, you know, <laughs> There's a, the the comedian Rich Hall says, you know, you take a guy and you attach a microphone to their mouth and get them playing guitar and they're singing and they're a genius like Bob Dylan. But add in a pair of cymbals to their knees and get them clapping and they're a lunatic on the side of the road. You know, that one man <laughs> band where somebody's able to do so many things because they've practiced that skill. And that's the level that you're trying to get to when you're talking about regulating your body. And this is why I like behavioral practice, be it breathing, pacing listening to something like we described and actually doing something rather than asking somebody to think when they're in the midst of a crisis that that find that thing walking is so simple because you don't have to think about walking it's not something now my two-year-old has does have to think about walking so if i distract him with something and he's walking one way he's going to turn and fall because he's not he's not at that point of it being automatic for him but walking is something that we don't have to think about but, you know, it's it's something that that operates on that very automatic, uh, fast brain uh, approach. So we're trying to take take something from our hot brain or our fast brain to make it more conscious for ourselves. So when you're talking about mindfulness, one of the key things that they will say is become aware of your breathing, become aware of the tension in your body, become aware of what your thoughts are. And that's trying to take you from that hot brain where you're not aware, where it's automatic, where it's something that's habitual to something that you're aware of, something that is uh, that is that you're conscious of. Really a lo lovely study I, I do with students. Um, so I, I would teach a lot of behavioral science in, in the University of Limerick and, and in Trinity. And one of the my favorite kind of demonstrations of the, the difference between them is to say, uh, you work on a laptop. I'll do this with you, actually, Caroline. So you work on a, you work on a laptop or you text. Yeah. And we do this on a QWERTY, Q-U-E-R-T-Y keyboard. So you must send emails, texts, use a keyboard on your phone multiple times a day. So you and you can type pretty fast. Yeah. OK, so the first five letters of the keyboard are Q-W-E-R-T-Y. OK, don't look at it. OK. <laughs> OK, if I were to go down to the next line, can you tell me what uh, the letters are? It starts with A. No idea. OK, so there's an S there. Yeah, correct. A, S. Yeah. Now, this is what you're doing you're, if, if, for people who are listening. Caroline's got her fingers out. She's looking up to her left and she's starting to type with her fingers to figure out that it's DF, ASDF. So our so your your hot brain, your fast brain is going, yeah, I know how to type. And if I were to ask you to send me a message, you could continue maintaining eye contact with me and type away, couldn't you? Yeah. Because there's a completely different set of of mechanisms at play. But when I'm asking you to become conscious of this, when I'm asking you to tune into that, it's it's your, in, in, in behavioral psychology, they'll call our hot brain, our system one brain. Mm -hmm. They'll call it our fast brain. There's a whole load of different terms. It's our unconscious brain, which, you know, is debatable. But then what you're trying to do is bring it to the conscious level. And that's called system two. It's our cold brain. It's our slow brain. And when you're trying to, 
remember those keyboard letters. It's quite tricky. It's slower. You're you're trying to work it out. So you try to use problem solving there. You took your fingers out and you're looking and going, oh, it's 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 this, mm-hmm. you know. Now, if you were to be, become conscious of this and say, OK, tomorrow, Porig's going to come on to a call and he's going to bloody ask me what all of these letters are. And you became aware of it and you started to really focus in on them and learn them. Well, then you've practiced that skill and it's it's become mm-hmm. more embedded for you. So it's really important to take something that can be automatic, particularly where there are faulty habits, where we notice, you know, I have a real strong stress response to particular events. Maybe it's my my son saying no or, you know, becoming upset in public. And that immediately sends my synapses firing. And I my automatic behavior in that regard is to do something that I regret, you know, shout loudly at them or, or, you know, whatever it is in, in that scenario. So becoming conscious of that and saying, okay, I'm going to practice this at home with, with my son. I'm going to take a step out and I'm going to move to a different place. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to count to three before I enter into, to, to this scenario. It can be really, really tricky, but the best place to, to start is with that behavioral practice. And it sounds like something for me anyway, discussing like the example there of like reacting when your toddler kicks off and it's so hard when it's in public because you just you have so many layers of not just the stress of them, but like the social implication. It helps me to go into those situations or anywhere where I might anticipate that I might feel anxious. So for someone else, it could be social anxiety, like I'm going to go into this event now. I'm probably going to feel this way if you can kind of step through it in advance and troubleshoot it when before it's happened. Now, obviously, there's loads of scenarios in life that just pop up and you you don't necessarily get the chance. But does that help? Like almost when you're in your cold brain, imagining following through into your hot brain? Totally. And and if you are finding yourself using these emergency responses all the time, there's something fundamentally wrong, you know, that you're that we're we're consciously having to think about it like a building. You know, we'll have a fire drill. We don't ever want to use that fire drill. We want to have fire doors and fire alarms and safety measures in place. So we never have to uh, use the fire drill or call the fire brigade okay so we're trying to so we have this as our as our fallback but ultimately what we want to do is to to rehearse so when you're what you're talking about there is mentally rehearsing how would i respond in this situation and also what am i doing when things are calm when i'm in a cold brain state to boost my own resources my own resilience at the times where things are going to get tough you know, what am I going to do? And I break that down into uh, to a very simple acronym, B-A-C-E. So BASE, B-A-C-E. I know it's, it's kind of different, but it's body care. And then think about what are our daily achievements? How are we connecting with others? And what is our enjoyment in the day? So re- keeping it really, really simple when we are, things are going okay for us, when we think we're calm, when we are anticipating particular hotspots, or speed bumps, or triggers in our day. These are the things that I've identified that seem to require me to have, you know, alternative responses, you know, require me to have a fire escape plan when I get up, when I when things become overwhelming. So you're pre-preparing, mentally rehearsing that, practicing it and thinking, okay, what am I going to do? What 
What is going to reduce the likelihood of this happening? For me, uh, you know, working in human services or working in um, educational settings, it is it has a lot of emotional labor. Yeah, so anyone so. who's list anyone who's listening who works in a hospital, who works in a school, works in a disability service, who works in any person facing industry, they would encounter what's called emotional labor. And you know, when I was in when I was in college, there were only two types of labor, Caroline. There was academic labor, which was projects and studying. And then in the summertime, there was manual labor. And that's what you did. And that was hard work. Okay. And then when I finished college, I encountered this third uh, type of labor, which is emotional labor, which is that work that goes with presenting yourself in a particular way to people, but also, in, I suppose, holding a lot of those emotions and the um the the labor that goes into to that um air hostesses air hosts air stewards experience a lot of it because they're presenting themselves as this helpful customer friendly but they're on their fourth flight of the day they're in cramped spaces there can be lots of competing stresses and demands similarly with nurses in in hospitals when i go into them i see the stresses and the competing demands that they're under so that emotional labor can be a huge trigger for people now any i suppose any clinician will tell you that in order to be effective you need to be empathic you need to empathize with the, the folks that you're working with you are a teacher and you really care for the children that are in your class because that's the nature of your job and you see children who are coming into you who are at risk who, who you know things at home aren't particularly good or they're coming into school hungry or there are uh there may even be some, some abuse issues there can be a lot of different things and that has an impact upon you because you're a good teacher or you're a good clinician but then you go home because you don't work all the time and you come home to your family, you come home to your friends, you come home to your partner. And it becomes your responsibility to to park that, that you're not carrying that emotional labor from one setting to the other, you know, that you're trying to. So and, and that's something that I think requires practice. And for me, it definitely was because it was a real shock to the system when this third labor came in that you felt like okay i can go in i can do the academic stuff i could do manual stuff but oh i really care for this family i really care for this client i really care for the people that i'm working with and it's having an impact on me because there are things outside of my control that i can't influence change on and i'm soaking this in i'm soaking this in because there are because we're social beings because as humans, we're we're social beings and we take the emotions of others and carry it. But I don't want to carry that home. I want to make sure that I am resilient and psychologically well and present for my family. So you're trying to build in simple routines, simple rituals, simple rules. And I say simple three times because that's important. You don't want these behavioral practices to be complex. You want them to be something that work for you. It could be, I'm 
fortunate that a lot of the time I'm driving in these scenarios. So there is that natural gap between finishing work and getting home. And in that half an hour, what am I listening to? Who am I connecting with? So I might listen to to the best of oasis in the car or I might listen to some I like to call it like uh, you know during the pandemic a lot of my playlists are like boys in their bedroom playing with the computers kind of music you know that real <laughs> chill out dance techno music and there's no words there's no emotion it's very bland and that's going to get me back to baseline and if I get home and I still haven't got back to baseline I'm going to take the dog for a quick walk and I'm going to try and, and, and bring it down. I might try and connect with somebody and ring them. But all the time, what I'm doing in that in that state is to get back grounded again um, to make sure that, that I'm maintained. I think often the, the task of getting grounded again is where people are like, oh, I, like if they're just new to feeling anxious, especially after COVID, like not knowing what to do. What kind of questions can we ask ourselves to figure out what will be the most effective for us to get us back to baseline? So like, for example, I would ask myself, what was I doing the last time I felt really at ease or? I, I Last week on the on the show, when we were talking to 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 Greg and Karen, we were talking about habit. And, and I think uh, Greg had. I was describing to him how we form a habit. And one of the important things is to have a reminder or a cue for ourselves that mm-hmm. when there's lots of noise, when we're tired, when we're stressed, when there's distractions there and our hot brain really wants to take over and just do the the, the thing that we probably shouldn't be doing or don't want to do, um, we need to have a reminder there for us. And Greg pointed to his arm. He had a tattoo of a question mark there. And he said, that's my why. That's my reminder for saying, What's my why? Why am I doing this? Now, if we're talking about things that are going to keep us calm, I think right now, if you're listening to this, think about what are the five things that really give you that sense of peace? What are those things that you really enjoy? And think about them, trying to really visualize what that looks like. What does it smell like? What does it, you know, what are the elements of that that really work for you? So I think the music is a great yeah. option because you can access that pr- that pretty quickly wherever you are. Yeah, music. Table tennis made it onto my list. <laughs> but um, if you're on the way in to give a presentation and you're cacking it and you're mm, you want to get yourself regulated, you probably can't shoot off for a game of table tennis. No, and it and you ask yourself what it, what kind of person are you? Are you somebody who relaxes by yourself? Mm. Or, you know, I find that sometimes I I relax more when I'm having a nice conversation with somebody, you know, I find and it's, oh, that helps ground me. That helps me to 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 feel more relaxed, but to really tune into that for yourself. Sometimes I like to walk by myself, listen to a podcast. Sometimes I like to walk and talk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So there's not there's it's not just a case of writing down that one thing that works for you. There are going to be different things that you require at different times, depending upon your mood, depending upon the circumstances, depending upon how that anxiety might be presenting it. But in your in your relaxed state, having those things written down and having them in a prominent place feeds into this idea that we can build it into a routine or a ritual or a habit for ourselves. And then we have those 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 few things written down, then start to look at your day. OK, so we've talked about looking at our day in terms of the hotspots or the triggers that might be there. Now look at your day and think, OK, where could I build in these 
resilience chargers, these behaviors that are going to be good for me, that are going to, you know, boost my battery. So is there a point where maybe yoga is something that really boosts your battery? Where could that fit in for you? Where is it that you could build that in in a simple way? Is it lunchtime? Is that a point where, you know, you might I've certainly found that exercise in the morning is just a no go because it's it's go, go, go with with my son. The evening times can be variable and there's too many variables because it might be go, go, go with him. There might be additional work that I have to do. Or I might just be too tired. But I found lunchtime works. Lunchtime can be a nice time to fit those in. So seeing where in your day you can fit those in. And so you're, do you remember we talked about habit stacking last week, where you're trying to take an existing routine and just add another routine on top of that. When we do that, when we embed habits into our existing routines, it's more likely that they will stick. So going back, going back to body care, it's things like exercise, things like healthy eating, drinking water and actually resting really well. You know, so trying to build those things in for, for yourself, really important. Yeah, and it, but this. it really has to be the things that help you feel calm. Like, because I know we said this last week, like you love to go and have a dip in the cold Irish sea. Like that would give me anxiety. I don't want to push myself <laughs> into behaviors that, you know, fit the bill of keeping us calm. If they if they're not, if, if you're kind of trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, like try and think about what makes you personally feel good like I think we've kind of we so easily forget the self and self-care which is a phrase I'm just so over but like yeah it has to be like honestly for and I've said this so many times for me it's like getting into bed watching some brain crushing reality tv and that just fills my tank up so much and it's probably killing off enough brain cells to like make me forget the stress I've just had or whatever um but it's really it's really important to, to really like hone in on what it is or what it could be for you and to ask yourself those questions and to like figure out those behaviors that help you feel a little bit more grounded when you are feeling calm so that you can then draw upon them when yeah. you're not and I think also like talking about the hot brain and stuff it, it can kind of sound like something you want to avoid going into your hot brain obviously you said like it's a very necessary thing to do but also for me I really am grateful after I've had an anxious experience, like say, for example, I go into, I'm not expecting it and I go into a social situation and suddenly I feel really socially anxious and I come away and I used to be like, oh my God, like, what does this mean about you? Like, what does this say? Like, you need to get a grip. I thought you were over this. I now say, okay, that was an anxious experience, but that is now giving me more information. Like I can learn from that. Like that was almost a, I don't want to say gift because it feels like shit, but I can take that and say, okay, well now I can troubleshoot that for the next time. So each one, each experience is something you can build upon. Um, Obviously you specialize in the behavior side of things, Pork, and I have learned from, I mean, I did cognitive behavioral therapy myself when my anxiety, when my anxiety was really, really bad. And it was so, so important for me to do because I wasn't just you know, ruminating on how anxious I felt. I was actually doing things. The behavior part was such the key piece for me was to put in place these practices and almost go through these experiments where I would put myself in a situation where anxiety would come up. And I think it's just really important for people to remember that anxiety and behavior are so interlinked and our behavior can influence anxiety just as much as our anxiety can influence our behavior but we actually really have a lot of power you don't often feel like it when you are in an anxious state but we do have a lot of power and where we have power I think is where we can act out the behavior 
Yeah. I, one of the things that I really like about CBT, about cognitive behavioral therapy, is the homework that goes with it, or the practices. You mentioned the practice, and you think about practice, practice, practice. What you're actually trying to do is embed those, the learning from those experiments into your daily into your daily life so our behavior can influence our anxiety and you start to spot those faulty responses that we have those ones where i find it really interesting that uh you know when we feel stressed we want to grab something like chocolate or uh, a soft drink or a cigarette or an alcoholic drink and that's that's for all of us. That that includes me at times. You know where we become overwhelmed, and it's this faulty response that we kind of know in the back of our mind that rationally, in the long term, in a few hours' time, in a few minutes' time, we're not going to feel great because of it. And it, in some cases, can increase our anxiety. You know, you increase nicotine, your heart rate's going to rise, caffeine, etc. But I find the practice part of it is, you, know, you describe them as experiments, and I think that's a really nice way of framing it, that if nothing changes, nothing's going to change, that actually getting out between CBT sessions and practicing and testing and not just thinking about thinking, but actually trying things out that are going to be effective for you and seeing what the world puts back at you, how your body interprets and perceives those events perceives those practices and you find something that works and you go okay i'm going to practice this because i'm now aware of it it's i'm aware of some of those automatic responses that just aren't working for me and now what i'm going to do is i'm going to try and teach myself to change that and at the start it's going to be difficult it's going to be like driving a car going to yeah i mean i had to start all over again i really had to learn i learned to put one foot in front of the other again yeah yeah just like Milo falling over when I call him and change direction, you know, he, he the, the two-year-old will, will tumble over. And it's the same with, with these practices that when we have particular events in our life that are causing us stress and anxiety, and we're learning alternative responses, we're learning different ways that are going to be helpful for us. And we're, we're attuned to that. We're actually really paying attention to it with our cold brain and saying, oh, hold on a second. I feel much better after that. Or I feel less anxious after going for a five minute walk or talking with a friend or taking the dog for a walk or avoiding doing something that was that I typically do that causes my my heart rate to to peak and tuning into that and, and giving ourselves credit for it that's part of the homework as well is going you know what you did really well here oh it's so it's, important like that compassion yeah. piece where you like what do I need right now? And like that to me has been like the cherry on top of everything I've learned about managing anxiety is to just step away from the self-criticism. And like, I would have, you know, done something like that when, because I don't know, you probably aren't familiar with like my story, but I was completely fine. Well, relatively fine. And then I went through such horrific anxiety that even going out to the shop was like a major deal for me. And I would, so easy for me now to be like, oh, you know, you could be doing so much more. Look at this person. They've launched this business. They've done that. And I'm like, hang on. At one point, not very long ago, it was a major achievement for me to even go to someone else's house and stay for a cup of tea or to go to the shop and not have to flee immediately. Like to be able to acknowledge and honor that progress, no matter how small or insignificant or trivial it might seem. Like that's the building blocks of 
compassion and, and growth that help you then face each anxious challenge. And if you're going into it, like if you're trying, like here we've talked about the hot brain versus the cold brain. If you're going into all of this with like an, a mindset of like being on the attack with yourself, it's a complete waste of time. And I think I, that's the last thing I learned about all of it, which was now I'm talking about as like where people should start. You know, you're yeah. here now, maybe you're anxious for whatever reason. That's okay. You are okay. And now apply that to what we're talking about here and it becomes a lot more doable. Yeah. You said two things that really piqued my interest there. One, you said to honor the honor the practice that you're making. And I thought that was the, the progress that you're making and honor the commitment that you've made to 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 dealing with it. And I think that's something to tune into and to say, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And this is good. And it's nice to hear it from somebody else as well. It's lovely to hear somebody else say that, you know, picking up on those slight changes that you made. So if you're the friend of somebody yeah. who's going through those changes and you start to see small changes in the way that they talk about themselves, the way they deal with tricky situations, the way that they're engaging in, in self-care, that, you know, that you're recognizing that and just acknowledging it for somebody and saying, yeah, I'm seeing this and you're doing great. Keep it going. Mm-hmm. Um you know, that's that's really important. And then the second thing that you said, Caroline, uh, was that what was the second thing that you said? You said something really uh, important at the end. I think everything I said was really important, Pork. <laughs> <laughs> what was the second thing that you said? Oh, goodness. The I'm after blocks, losing it. The where to start, kind of starting with compassion. Yes. Sorry. That's exactly that's exactly it. I think that if when you're when you're engaging in self-analysis, the way that I approach it are, is, is three-pronged. One is curiosity, is trying to understand yourself a bit more. And it's it's ongoing. It's you're never, you've never figured yourself out. It's always with this this cap of curiosity. The second cap that I put on is compassion and compassion for yourself and compassion for others. That we're still trying to everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes faulty choices when we we feel overwhelmed and stressed. And to deal with that with compassion in a non-judgmental way for, for others and for ourselves is important. And the third thing, Caroline, is fun, is that when you can incorporate some element of fun into this, when you can, even when, when you know, you're reflecting on it to say, OK, how can I build some joy in, into this? How can I build some enjoyment and playfulness and pleasure in, into my day? And particularly when you're going through the heavy process of of CBT or self-reflection to not always have everything so serious and to, to incorporate that element of fun into it. Yeah, it's so important. And you can forget that. I mean, I don't know if there's too many moments of fun in owning it, the anxiety podcast, but we've had a few here. So I'm grateful for that. Porik, thank you so much for coming on. And let's direct people to more resources. So actualizeacademy.com. So actualizeacademy.com, we do CPD courses for uh, primary school teachers predominantly. Okay. Um, you can catch us on hello at actualizeacademy.com if you have any inquiries. Um, our courses will be launched again uh, in the middle of April 2023 for the summer program. And yeah, that's that's. And you'll have, a, you'll have a brand spanking new Instagram soon that we can I can go back and retrofit into the episode and p- tell people to go follow you there for more pearls of wisdom. I- I need to get on this Instagram buzz, Caroline. 
Okay, so you need to get on. I mean, like we need to go on the TikTok pause. We need to go on the next thing. Oh, it's exhausting. Um, but thank you so much. I have learned a lot from you, and I really appreciate your the way you break things down. And I don't doubt that listeners will get something from it too. So thank you. Thanks so much, Caroline. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top you can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.